the Gospel of John this morning, uh, John chapter 14 will be our text. I'll be reading verses 1 through 3 in just a moment. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Welcome, welcome. Good to see every single one of you here. As our summer is drawing nigh unto a close, uh, we see faces returning back for the school year. Wow. Where did it go? It went fast. A special thank you for the many. I think a Charlotte concert who had up our outreach um, ministry on Friday night. We just met some amazing, amazing people. I want to thank the many that served. Uh, Friday, Friday morning, late morning, there was this really strong like onion smell that was permeating the whole building. I came out of my office and dear Helen Barrett, um, want to thank her, was chopping onions, and there's tears just streaming down her face. Um, just, just so grateful for the many that did work. And so we rejoice in that opportunity to meet amazing people in our community. Uh, this is our last week, believe it or not. We've been at Ecclesia for about three months now. This is the 12th and final uh, promise that that we see and will study that Jesus has given to us. Um, and it's been an enlightening and amazing time for me to learn and grow. Hopefully it has been for you as well. First and foremost, would you just bow your heads? We need to go to the Lord um, in prayer. I'm still trying to um, just comprehend this septillion, this, this number, three septillion and that's the God that we worship and are praying to at this moment. Let's bow our heads. Father, this is all, this is all about you. This is all for you, our coming together. Lord, to sing and to shout from the top of our voices of your goodness, of your greatness, of your grace. We thank you. We're all struck. Um by your awesomeness. You are the only one that, that deserves that word, that adjective, truly awesome. Father, we thank you that we have a few moments now with your word before us. And I would ask, I am in need and I plead for help um, that you would be glorified in every part of this study as we dig in and search and look at the promises and truth that you've given to us. Father, I thank you for every man, every woman, every child that is here this morning, that is gathered to worship. Father, I thank you for what you're doing in our hearts. We know, Lord, right now as we examine this subject, I'm just being anxious, I'm being troubled or worried. God, we thank you that you don't leave us in that state, that you have a solution and a promise and Lord willing, I would ask that we would be encouraged by that this morning. May you speak. May you open our eyes to see and our ears to hear you. We love you. We thank you for loving us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay, there's been a lot of promises that we've seen. I appreciate both Pastor Aaron and Matt McDermott who helped kind of preach me through this series as well. Um, we know that the word ecclesia is that Greek word for what we would use for church. 
It's defined as people who gather, such as we have done this morning. We gather together with a specific purpose. We know that Jesus doesn't leave us, but he gives to us the means to accomplish that purpose, or what I call the power to accomplish the person, the purpose that we have um, been given. Uh, Jesus says, I will build my church. I will come to you. I'll make you fishers of men. Um, I will give you words and wisdom. When we don't know what to say, God promises to give us the right, right words. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will give you rest or I will give you peace. I'll give you keys to the kingdom of heaven. He gives to us authority through his word. I will love you and manifest myself to you. I'll, I'll give them eternal life. I've, I've called you my friends. I've called you an intimate relationship. I am praying for you specifically as we saw last week that Jesus is interceding on our behalf, seated at the right hand of his father. And now, now there is another one. I will come again. That's what we pause at. We think about all that God has done for us. I was reading just this week in Exodus chapter three, where Moses, if you remember, is being called by God and he's standing before the burning bush. Every single law, okay, that is out there says that a, a bush that is on fire ought to be consumed. And yet it's not being consumed. And I thought of, of you and I. That in all honesty, because of our sinfulness, we deserve to be consumed. We deserve to be burned up. And yet God, what? Defies the odds. And he extends to us grace as we move forward as a local church of those who have been called together for purpose. Let us just live and never lose sight of the amazing grace that we enjoy every single day, every single day. We see that on display even in our text right now. I want to direct your attention to the first three verses of John chapter 14. The word of the Lord is this. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Again, let's set the scene here. We know who's the author. Okay, we know that, that John, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. At some, at some level, kind of wonder if he struggled a little bit with a pride problem. We know that he and his brother James got in an argument on who's the greatest in the kingdom. John gave to us five books. Notice, notice the, um, the uh, naming of the books. There's the Gospel of John. There's 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. There's the Revelation to John. It's kind of like John doesn't want to be forgotten here. He is truly human. He displays to us what? The full emotion, um, the feelings, different from the other synoptic gospels. John lets us kind of see underneath the hood as far as how people are feeling. And this is one of those scenes. We know it's late on Thursday evening. They're finishing up the, the, the Last Supper. They're, uh, they're in the upper room we know that Jesus, who has literally, literally been with them 24-7, he 
He has led them, he has fed them, he has taught them. He has just given them the word that he's going to be um, uh, arrested. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be crucified. He says, I'm not going to stay dead. I'm going to come again. I'm going to come back. Now he just tells them that I'm going to leave you. And think about the feeling of devastation. When a loved one, someone that you have literally spent 24-7 with for three plus years is going to leave you. The disciples, bless their hearts, are profoundly confused with what is going on. They don't like what they hear. They don't want to hear what they've just heard. And so what is the feeling? What is the, what is the way that you would feel if you have spent amazing amounts of time with someone and you have developed a love for them and you know that they love you and they're telling you, by the way, I'm out of here, I'm gone. And there's this feeling, it's, it's in the pit of your stomach, a hurt, an aching, an anxiousness. And, and, and because of what's happening around them, they're worried, they're troubled, they're terrified. What's next? What are we going to do without our dear rabbi, without our dear teacher? Remember this, just like any one of us this morning. There were a thousand circumstances that you're distressed, that you're troubled. Jesus is concerned. Just like he was concerned for the disciples in that setting, in that scene, in that upper room, Jesus is concerned for them. Jesus is concerned for you. Remember that. Know that Jesus comforts. That's what he is. That's what he does. Regardless of that anxiousness, that anxiety, that fret and fear and worry, Jesus comforts. So what does he do? He is unmoving. He is unmovable in his love. And he begins by expressing a desire for his disciples. And he expresses a desire to you and I this morning as his followers. He says this, let not your hearts be troubled. We could translate that literally, translate that literally, and it would sound something like this: Stop letting your heart be troubled. You believe in God, whom you do not see. Believe in me, who is sitting before you, whom you do see. Now we know it says what? Don't let not your hearts. That word heart, cardia. We know it's not referring to that that mass of muscle that beats within our chest. Several references throughout the pages of scripture. What? You have to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What is the heart? It is that inner person. It is that inner self. It is the seat of our emotions. We use a term like heartache or heartbroken. Someone that we love is not going to be there any longer and our heart is broken. It's tearing apart. Jesus says what? Let not your heart be, the word is terrasso. It means don't let your heart be stirred up or agitated or caused to be in great distress. I have news for you. I want you to know this. I want you to hear this. What does he want them to hear? Jesus is saying this, and I want us to hold on to it today, that the greatest antidote to worry, the greatest solution to any fear, any trouble, any distress, any anxiety is not lavender oil. It's not yoga. 
It's not a warm bubble bath. It's not a scented candle. It's not soft music. All of those things are wonderful, but it's not going to be the ultimate solution for the anxiety that we face today. Jesus says, this is the solution. Number one, a rock solid belief, faith in God, whom you do not see, but most importantly, we have seen the evidence of God as he has come here wrapped in the flesh of a man, manifested himself, made himself known to us. And we have record of that. Jesus says, believe in God, believe also in me who is sitting before you. He speaks to the disciples. This phrase is interesting, this belief in God. It's, it's a command. It's an imperative in, in Greek, it could be rendered literally, you believe in God. Now, if you back up and consider this text within its context, we know what that news has been given that they don't want to hear, the departure of Jesus. And we know ultimately that there is hope. Why? Because Jesus is the one. We see in verse six that, that, that he himself makes a statement, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes in the Father except through me. So there, we, we know that as we expand this text, we see that the belief in God specifically is talking about belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, those who believe in me, I've promised you something. I have something for you. And God is good to his promises. Be assured of that. Two of them we want to look at this morning. The first one very specifically is this. Jesus promised he is preparing a place for those who believe in him. Stressed, worried, trouble, anxious, suffering, anxiety. He is preparing a place for those who believe in him. Begins with this, in my father's house, and, and I gave great thought with father's house, that it seems somewhat, isn't there been references actually in this very gospel? If you go earlier in John chapter two, if you remember, Jesus goes into his father's house, into the temple. Remember, he cleans house. He says that my father's house should be a house of prayer. So maybe they're referring at some level that I'm taking you to this temple, but we, 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 we know what happens to the temple. Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13, Jesus makes it very clear what's going to happen to the temple. The temple is going to be coming apart. This is around 30, 33 AD. By 70 AD, the Romans roll into town and they absolutely decimate. I mean, they take apart every single stone of this temple. So that can't be the father's house. Hebrews 9 refers to what? That, that it's, a, it's, it's a house that has been made with hands. It's a, it's a copy. The word is, is copy that's used. The temple represented what? The existence of God. That was built with hands. It's just, a, it's just a replica of the ultimate place. My father's house has to be and is referring to where my father is in heaven. I'm going to my father's house. And there's many what? There's many, the word is Monet. And there's been a massive misinterpretation and misunderstanding regarding or surrounding this particular word. Why? Because a lot of us have heard this and we love this, that there is a mansion that is waiting for us. 
And we have this idea that what? That, 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 that America, who loves big and loves comfortable and loves palatial, we have this mansion that's waiting for us. In all honesty, the word is better translated abode or dwelling place, or specifically, as we read in the ESV, a room. I'm like, oh, man, I thought it was a mansion. I'm going to get a room here. It's actually kind of sad that we have built some of our theology, and sadly, you have to be careful with some of the old hymns or songs that we have been singing over the years. I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. Listen to this, in that bright land where we'll never grow old and someday yonder we will never more wander but walk on streets of purest gold, they'll actually be there. Listen to this, don't think me poor, deserted, or lonely. I'm not discouraged. I'm heaven bound. I'm but a pilgrim in search of the city. I want a mansion, a harp, and a crown. See, we, we, we sing that and we're like, that's what's waiting for us. And so we have this like understanding that there's a particular street with really, really big mansions on it. The Apostle Paul and Peter, James and John, they got like major mansions. And then we're like, well, then there's another street and those mansions are a little bit smaller. That's the Martin Luther's, the Jonathan Edwards, the George Whitfield's. Okay, and then you go to the next street Ah, it's kind of a mansion. That's where the Art Greys hang out. Okay, that's kind of that street. And then there's us. Somewhere in the back part of town with these, what, kind of pine wood, pine board structures. That's, that's where we're going to be hanging. Then there's this understanding that says what? Whatever you put in the offering plate is going to determine the size of your mansion. The more you put in the offering plate, the bigger the mansion you're going to have. Bad theology, bad teaching. What you put in the offering plate feeds your pastors, just so you know that. Turns the lights on, the heat's on. The heat's on. That, that's, that's what, so it's, it's not dependent. You can't put enough in there. We put enough in there, What? to do the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we are called to do. So we have this whole understanding that says, this is, this is, wait a minute, it's not what we really think about. Jesus, what was Jesus' occupation when he was here on earth? Wasn't he, a, wasn't he a carpenter? Didn't he build stuff for a living? I'm just guessing, I'm just guessing that a God who spoke a, what, three Septillion, Pastor Aaron, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta prove that number somehow for me, okay? Three septillion. If he spoke three septillion stars into existence in a moment, what is this place like that he has been building for us for years, for years? Revelation twenty-one gives a little bit of a description. It's it, it, it refers to 12,000 stadia. We don't use that term in our measurements any, any longer. It talks about, it's, it's established that, that, that heaven is four square, that it's, that it's equal in length and it's equal in width and equal in height. And it's hard for us to kind of like, so what kind of a structure is this anyway? 
There was an Australian engineer by the name of Tumas who, who estimated and who translated, and he, and he came to the understanding that that's about, um, about 1,500 miles cubed. How, how you cube a mile, I'm not exactly sure, but it, 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 it estimates, and what they guess is that it's about 2.25 or two and a quarter million square miles, this, this place that we will live, this, this mansion, this, this, this father's house that he's adding rooms on for us. Two and a quarter million square miles. We'll put that into comparison. Think of the city of London, kind of a large city in England. 140 square miles. All of London is 140 square miles, and we have 2.25 million. Well, it's fun to kind of estimate, like, wow, that must be amazing, but it's going to be new heaven and new earth. It's going to be absolute infinite in our understanding. Later on today, oh, families, gather with the word of God and read. Read Revelation 20 and 21, 22 about this this place that awaits us. Read read about the fact that there literally will be golden streets. Read about the city with 12 different gates and each gate has one mass of pearl on it, a sea of glass, diamonds and precious stones reflecting every single color in the rainbow. When Jesus builds something, Jesus builds it well. He builds it beautiful, full. Most importantly, it's what? It's where our Father is. And with him, it says very clearly that there will be, and they're all over, they're all over today. Every day, every week, we hear what? There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more loss. There'll be no more death. My Father's health, there's no more disease no more brokenness there's no more sin jesus in that moment of anxiety that we're facing i don't know what's next jesus is preparing a place for those who believe in him he is the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through jesus secondly we see that jesus also promised that he's going to return to get those to gather together those who believe in him. Another promise. Just as Jesus promises with a purpose to comfort our anxiousness, our troubled hearts, he promises, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. What amazing news. What comforting, soothing, hopeful, hope-filled News, no doubt the disciples are reeling in pain. They are brokenhearted. They are saddened. Jesus is leaving them and they can't go where Jesus is going. But he's saying this. I will return. I will return. Many of you I know are history buffs and we hear that phrase and there's something automatically even in our own american history where we hear of someone who makes that statement remember it was it was it was um march of 1942 and the supreme allied commander 
um, of all of forces. General Douglas MacArthur was in the Philippines with his family, and, and it was getting it was getting heated, and they were closing in, and they had to evacuate him, and so they snuck him out. But he gave this promise. He said, I will return. Over two years, October 1944, and we have this image that is like etched in our minds. The General Douglas MacArthur, and he has his dress khakis on, his 50 mission hat, and he's what? He's soaked up to his knees as he wades in. He's got his Ray-Ban sunglasses on. We think of the corncob pipe in his mouth. He actually didn't have the corncob pipe in his mouth, just so you know. Someone be correcting me. I know he didn't have the corncob pipe, but that's the way we envision it. It's General Douglas MacArthur. He kept his word. We'll return, and he did return. He did come back, and he celebrated as this hero. What, what, what does this remind us? That the sadness of leaving can only be removed by the promise of a return. Think of that setting, that scene in the upper room. Think at at times how you, every one of us, at time have felt what? Just left alone and abandoned. The, the, The sadness of leaving can only be removed by the promise of return. Jesus knows what, so he is graciously and patiently and lovingly taking the time to tell his followers, his disciples, but also what you and I today. I'm going to come back. I'm going to get you. I'm going to gather everyone together. I'm going to take you home with me. Throughout this whole scene, throughout much of scripture, we, we see um, images of a marriage relationship here. We think particularly of a wedding celebration. And there is, there is um, Jewish wedding customs and Jewish wedding traditions that we see here all over the place. What many people don't realize is that in a, in a Jewish wedding and a Jewish celebration, they actually had a ceremonious service where what bride and groom would meet under the hoopah, Okay. And they would actually have a ceremony publicly. They would exchange rings. They would take a a sip of wine. But that was really a promise of betrothment or engagement. Remember it says that Joseph was betrothed to Mary. And so they come together to have this public ceremony for betrothment. And then they leave. They go separate places. And they do not live together as husband and wife. They're not married yet. They're just betrothed to one another. What happens is that the groom will go one direction and he will go home to his father and the bride will go her direction and they will be separated for up to a year. For that whole year, the groom is what? He's building onto his father's house. You better make sure in Jewish tradition you have a good relationship with your in-laws because you're not going to get your own house. It's going to be a room on, on, added on to his father's house. And so he would work all year building this room. Why? Because he's getting ready to go get her. And what is she doing? Literally, she is spending the entire year getting herself ready for this wedding. She's sewing her, her, her wedding garments. She's preparing herself. She's adorning herself. You think your wife takes a long time to get ready in the morning? How about a year this gal's getting ready? And she's getting ready because she does not know the exact time. 
What's interesting as well, I learned this week that it's not even the groom. It's not even the groom that says, okay, I'm going to go get her. Dad says, now I want you to get her. It's done. Son, go get her. That, that's, that's what would happen. And, 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 and it, would, it would happen at that moment. The house is done and, and the bridegroom, the groom comes and says, I'm going to get you. And we're gonna, that's when the party happens. That's when everyone gathers in the celebration and the feast is rolled out because that's the moment that they come to you. At um, uh, 36 minutes from now, at 12 noon exactly, Today is August the 12th. At 12 noon on August the 12th, Wendy and I will celebrate our 29th wedding anniversary. That was my idea, the whole 12-12 thing. Like, that's what I contributed to it. If it was on August the 12th, I was like, let's do it at 12 noon. I think that's cool. We did it. And what happened? I, I remember it. I had hair back then. Wendy was as stunning as she is today. And she walked up the aisle. There were literally, there were five pastors that participated in our wedding. And I remember I was up at the front. I had to like elbow my way through the pastors. And when her father walked her down there, I went down the stairs and I'm like, guess what? She's not yours any longer. She's mine. And I went and got her. You you come up and and we're going to like, we're going to like be together forever you see that's the image that's happening here that we are the bride of christ we are to be adorning ourselves not pampering ourselves we are to be pursuing holiness we're to be about what the work that we've been called to do because we don't know the day we don't know the hour but the father says what it's time Go get her. Go bring her home. I know there's many. I know there's many questions automatically. Okay, so like when is this going to be? And, and what is this going to look like? Like specifically, what's it going to look like? We don't know specifically. We know what scripture says. Like the way that Merrill Tenney says it. He says, though he did not elaborate on the promise. Tenney says, although Jesus, he didn't elaborate on the promise, the guarantee is unmistakable. His return is as certain as his departure, and he would take them with him to his father's house. That's what we know for certain. Be assured that we do not have the time this morning to exhaust every single differing view of eschatology, the, the theology of final events or end times. Is this, is this speaking exclusively of the rapture? Is this the second coming? Are these distinct events under the umbrella of one? What, like what, what exactly is this? We, we know what the word of God tells us. I'll read to you what it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and there's some indicators. So when you, when you see these indicators, well, you better make sure that you are ready. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet 
of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we will always, always be with the Lord. And how does Paul conclude that verse to the group of believers in the church of Thessalonica going through a difficult time? He concludes with this phrase, therefore, encourage. New American Standard says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, now we, we don't know when this, it says in Revelation that he's going to come like a thief in the night. It says what? That, that Jesus does not, even only the father knows the hour. Father says to the son, you, you go get her, you go bring her home. We, we live in a world, and there is no, it's no secret, it's no surprise that we live in a world today of people that are filled with an overwhelming sense of anxiety and stress like never before. There, there are medically diagnosed cases, one after another, after another, after another of anxiety disorders for children, like little, like kindergarten kids and first grade kids being diagnosed with phobias that they've not had before and diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And there's no doubt that people have gone through some horrific things in life. But God's design is that you don't Day in that sense of anxiety. God's, God's desire for you is for your heart not to be troubled, regardless of what you have faced in the past. But he offers healing and he offers hope. Stop, stop letting your hearts be troubled. And what every single one of us need to be reminded of today is that we are to believe God is in charge. Three things I want to leave you very quickly in closing. The first one is this, be encouraged. Be encouraged with these words. As I said in 1 Thessalonians chapter four, therefore encourage or comfort one another with these words. Inevitably, you and I will have opportunity to speak into the lives of other people. We saw that just this past week in several settings. Guatemala team, just returning home. What they do? They spoke into the lives of others. Tuesday night, sitting around a, fire and a pouring rain under a tent with men on Tuesday night. We spoke into one another's lives. Friday gathered together just, just to love on others. And we have the opportunity to speak into one another's lives. And we face people who are struggling with levels of anxiety. Let me give you a word you can be encouraged with. Encourage one another with the promise that Jesus is preparing or building us a place and he's going to come back and get us. Secondly, what? Be expectant. It says what in Matthew chapter 24? You must be ready. You must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. The bride had no clue as far as when there was going to be a knock on the door and say, it's time, honey, it's time. We must well, well, we're going we're gonna to get to that. Like, I'm, I'm going to make amends with that person and I'm going to get to them. Like sometime in the future, we're going to sit down and we're going to make things right. No, today. Go to them today. 
Yeah, well, when school starts and the semester starts, then I'm really going to dive into, I'm going to be disciplined in my quiet time. No, you're not. Do it today. Well, when we have a baby, then we're going to start going to church because then, you know, it's more of a family thing. Then when the family's here, then we're going to start going to church. No! Be expectant. Be ready for his return. Thirdly and finally, and I just love this, be excited. Be excited. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. I think Peter kind of got that idea of excitement as well. I think he was a man that, that we connect with. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. You know it that you have dates on your calendar and they're circled or they're bolded or they're highlighted, whatever system you use that what? That there's a day you're looking forward to. We're going to celebrate this. There's going to be a party. We start this, we get this today. Matter of fact, our son and daughter-in-law are landing within a half hour and we're going to go to the airport this afternoon and we're going to go pick them up. We're going to hug them and kiss them. I look forward to that. I'm excited to see them. It's been on our calendar. You, you realize that we can live with a sense of anticipation and excitement. We look forward to the day of God. His eminence, which means at any moment, he can return. We have these promises. Be encouraged. Be expectant. Be excited. Why? So that our hearts are not troubled, but we also can minister to people with a message of good news. It says there is no need. There's no need for you to live in constant chaos and anxiety when you believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes on the Father except through him. His finished, final, and full work accomplished on the cross and in the tomb, all for the glory of the Father. We get to be, we get to be, we get to be a church that worships that one. Father, we love you. Thank you for your word to us. I would pray, Lord, that you would use us however you see fit, that we would behold your goodness, your grace, behold your glory. Lord, that we don't have to, we don't have to be worried. We don't have to live in fear. When our, when our trust and our faith and our belief in Jesus is in place. God, if there's people that are here today that, that are anxious and are troubled because they don't know you or draw them unto yourself. Help them to tap someone on the shoulder, even today, pull them aside. Say, how can I know? How can I know that Jesus is preparing a place for me? How can I know that he's going to come back? Father, may we be ones who just tell others of that good news of how they can be in relationship with the Holy God, although we're sinful because of the work of Jesus. Thank you for your blessings. Thank you for this time. In your name we pray. Amen.